So in what seems to be one of my new roles here, I want to introduce tonight's speaker hours before she gets here. <laughs> um, uh, her name is Margot, and um, some of you may remember her from years past. She's uh, been a longtime practitioner um, and a, a professional storyteller. She used to be on staff here as a cook. Margot's uh, master's students at Harvard Divinity School um, and does this really quite remarkable thing where she um, she has a great passion for Pali, the language Pali, and uh, for the Jataka tales, which are the stories of the Buddha as Bodhisattva in his previous lives and translates the stories from Pali into English and then develops creative versions of them um, and brings elements from, from the Pali Suttas into her storytelling. And um, The last thing I'm supposed to say is that she'll be presenting a one-day workshop on the Jataka Tales and Storytelling next year at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which I assume you've all gotten some acquaintance with in, in the last few days. So that's tonight. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> the far enemy of Upeka, which is um, equanimity. Uh, the far enemy is, we'd call it, you know, reaction or reactivity. Or, you know, it's, those, it's being swept up into those highs and lows. Did you all hear that? Was there a no in there somewhere? No, okay. (laughs) No, that was the original no, or no, you didn't hear it? (laughs) Did not hear, okay, thank you. (laughs) The question was about the Brahma Viharas, and especially in, um, was it Matan Compassion? Mudita, Matan Mudita, where there's. this emphasis placed on doing it selflessly and yet feeling that there's a kind of benefit and recognizing that if you send metta to somebody who's difficult, they might behave better and it would be better for you. And then um, sort of not knowing if that's selfish in a way, I guess I'm paraphrasing you, you know, that to want the benefit, to recognize the benefit, and does that uh, affect the, the practice? And, um Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's a an interesting question, actually. Um, there's a level of teaching which I think can be confusing for us um, unless we go back to that idea that all beings everywhere want to be happy, that in fact we deserve to be happy, wanting to be happy is a good thing, it's not a bad thing. Um, The problem is not that urge toward happiness, the problem is the ignorance it's often aligned with because we actually don't know where happiness is to be found, but that urge toward happiness uh, is a wonderful thing. And so in a practice like one of the Brahmaviharas, say, especially one of the first three, and even the fourth with equanimity, uh, you run right up against this because it doesn't seem right somehow to want to be happy, to derive benefit, 
uh, especially since there's so much emphasis on the giving um, nature of it and the selfless nature of it. But I think the selfless nature of it really comes uh, from understanding that the gift we give may not be received in the way we want it to be received. You know, we may offer great loving kindness and somebody may not appreciate that, you know, or they may not change their behavior. It's where the whole role of equanimity comes in. But to understand that we derive benefit from it ourselves, it's absolutely true, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's hard to accept that sometimes. I think very often in our culture we confuse that with greed, but it has nothing to do with greed. In fact, classically, when you do metta practice, the way, say, I did it or Joseph did it in Burma, you begin each sitting by reciting the 11 benefits that are supposed to accrue from doing metta. I don't know if I can still remember them, but I think I can. Um, If you do loving-kindness practice, you'll sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams, people will love you, devas and brahmas will love you, devas and brahmas will protect you, poison and fire won't harm you. Um, You'll have a clear face, a serene mind, you'll die unconfused, and when you die, you'll be reborn in the Brahma world. (laughs) So... You know, and some of them are hard to understand, like what does it mean that poison and fire won't harm you? And, you know, um, so we all make our own interpretations of that, you know, based on um, a greater in-depth, you know, examination of what they might mean. And, and also it's a funny thing, like Joseph will tell the story sometimes um, about uh, having the worst nightmare of his life, doing metta practice in Burma, and then having to get up and say, you'll sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams, you know. So it's not meant to be like this kind of blanket, you know, promise, or to overlay the fact that everything is a process, and in process there's some very rough times, you know, and there's some very intense, difficult things that come up just naturally in in any kind of purification process like that. But you do that recitation because you're supposed to be inspired, by what you're doing. That look what happens. If you really turn your heart toward loving kindness, you'll sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams, people will love you. You know, and it's just like um, it's meant to build great joy and delight. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> Running into it in what circumstance? Yeah, I think you did answer it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> well, <laughs> the question was about, and the answer was about um, doing a Brahmavihara practice like equanimity and not just soaking up the feeling that comes up, but continually um, extending your awareness of the, in other words, of the object, you know, of the person that you're, you're sending the feeling to. So it's not just to get lost in the in the feeling state, which he answered very well. (laughs) The what? Mm 
Mm-hmm. Well, is this is the area still full of sensation when you go back, or is it just a memory that it was? Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong there. I mean, many people will say yes, that a a particular configuration of energetic um, blocking, you might say, is resonant in certain parts of the body. Um, And so paying attention to that area and letting it unfold and, you know, see what varying sensations and emotions come up can be very helpful. But um, I tend... So there's nothing wrong with that, you know, but I I tend personally to kind of more trust the ongoing organic nature of the process. You know, I don't think you need to focus in on, you know, your right knee, for example, you know, um, if it's not in that moment calling your attention uh, in the hopes that, you know, it will release something kind of hidden and profound. I think... uh, the really important thing is is developing the skill of awareness, you know, and everything that implies because of the compassion and the ease and the non-judgmental nature of it. And wherever you're practicing that is okay. Because in the end, you'll practice it everywhere, you know. It'll... Yeah, yeah, well, it does. And the body does reveal what's in the mind. It's very interesting that way. Um, But you know, one of my teachers, I think it was Manindra early on, said something to me like, um, you know, what are you going to do if, because I was was into that mode very much, you know, like, well, I'm going to you know, get rid of this block and that thing and and be free. And he said something like, what are you going to do if all that past life theory is correct? You know, in which case you're not just dealing with the accumulations of one lifetime, you're dealing with the accumulations of lifetime stretching out till beginningless time. You know, maybe there's another attitude to have toward <laughs> what you discover. You know, rather than having that kind of thing, you know, like I'm going to clear it all out. Um, it's not to say things don't clear out, because a tremendous amount clears out, but naturally, you know, just in the course of, of developing the awareness, you just come upon these things and and they unwind. Oh. Paul? Mm-hmm. I think, did you all hear that? The question was about um, the traditional flow of the practice, which is first you develop concentration strongly and then you do Vipassana, and how the turning that around, you know, so that you start doing Vipassana right away um, is a relatively recent innovation, which is um, true for this tradition 
anyway, um, perhaps not for all traditions, but it's certainly true for this tradition. And uh, that fact bringing up some doubt in his mind, and um, have I ever experienced that, and did I think there was some benefit to doing an intensive period of concentration, like uh, metta, for example, or one of the Brahmaviharas, and then going on to do to Vipassana. Um, I think the practices are very intertwined. I, my first response to the second question uh, was, yes, I definitely think there's a benefit <clears throat> to doing intensive concentration practice. But I think uh, my experience, anyway, is that despite it being <clears throat> in that order classically, that to do a concentration practice well is not that easy, and that uh, to do it really well you need a lot of insight and a strong basis in understanding, because so much of it is about letting go of distraction. See, first of all, you have to be able to let go well, you know, which means not fighting and not struggling and not hating yourself and not getting all tossed around and then bitter about that, you know. You really, in some way, it's almost like a split-second acknowledgement of the impermanence and the transparency of what's arisen to distract you. It's like you see right through it and you let it go. And that comes from having the insight practice, you know, so... Um, doing it in that order, unless you're um, gifted with the ability to let go very gracefully, which is also possible, then um, sometimes the, you know, the reverse of the classical order can make a lot of sense. And also, uh, in this particular school in Burma, where they, they uh, emphasize Vipassana first, it's really so that people don't get confused and attached to some of the very glorious states that can happen when you do intensive concentration, because they can be very beguiling, you know, to feel, well, that's it, that's the goal of practice. And then, you know, three weeks later, to be sitting with knee pain again, you know, and to feel, oh, I've fallen, um, is, is a shame, you know. So the most important thing always is right view. It's, it's having the view or the understanding that we take into the practice, whatever practice that is. And, and especially if you can do concentration practice, which can be so tricky, both in the execution of it and in getting attached to it, it's very important to have right view. So um, I tend to almost reverse the classical order sometimes, but I think uh, doing a period of concentration practice is fantastic. You know, It's like really exploring the uh, layers and levels that the mind is capable of. You know, as long as you can do that with... with detachment and with understanding, then I think it's great. Um, As to the doubt, you know, um, I, you know, I did concentration practice, I did metta practice long after, and the other concentration practices I did, I did long after I had started doing Vipassana. Um, And in, I remember in 1984 when Upandita was here, when I was going through a particularly painful, difficult, um, upsetting period of my practice, I went to him and said, you know, because I had read that in, in certain schools, like particularly in, in Thailand these days, they still practice in the old classical way, you know, where you do a concentration practice to um, a certain level, and then you switch to Vipassana. So I went to him and I said, uh, I'm kind of tired of this, you know. What I'd really like to do is is a concentration practice to the first jhana, and then I'd like to watch the fading away of states like rapture and delight, you know, and happiness. And he laughed, of course, you know. And he said, where'd you hear about that? Um, and didn't let me do it. Um, <laughs> but um, I honestly think in the end it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter which you do first. The important thing um, is a kind of fearlessness about your experience. You know, and that's based on understanding. And, and that you're going to need whatever practice you're doing, you know, to understand that <clears throat> in doing any practice it will encompass a whole range of different experiences. And metta wasn't always sweet and nice either. You know, there were, there were some very rocky things that happened for me in doing metta. And, Um, as they happen, you know, for everybody. And so uh, the reason I said it's only true that it's recent in some schools is that other schools really, uh, as far as I understand, like certain Tibetan schools will emphasize 
almost like the innate nature of, of awareness. And so the, the development of concentration as a prelude to wisdom is seen as something that we can get stuck on. You know, like, um, you know, first I have to have a comfortable place to sit, and then I have to make sure it's quiet, and then I have to, you know, just push everything out of my mind and make everything nice, and then I can concentrate, then I can meditate. Whereas they might emphasize meditating in any situation, you know, whether you're being bombarded with sound or, or whatever is, is really uh, looking, translating it back to Vipassana language, looking to be aware or mindful in that, in that situation. And so um, often in those schools, if you get really concentrated and everything is settling down and it's all beautiful and wonderful, they'll say, break your meditation. That's the time to get up. You know, so you're not fighting and you're not resentful and you're not afraid that someone's going to make a sound, you know, and ruin your meditation. You can have the confidence and faith that your meditation can be in whatever you're doing. You know, it doesn't have to be protected in that way. So there are lots of different ways of working that are all, um, they're all interesting. Yeah. Um, the question was about transitioning back into daily life practice, which she um, does twice a day for 45 minutes to an hour each time, which is great. And, uh, but here already seeing the concentration slipping away and wondering if I would recommend something for the, the transition back. I mean, I think yes and no. You know, I think if you can sit more... Um, and do things like walking practice, you know, it would be really very good. On the other hand, the concentration is going to slip anyway, you know, and um, in the end, that has to be acknowledged because even if you sat, well, you sit all day here and sometimes the concentration is really not very good, you know, <laughs> you know, so you all know that already. <laughs> That's not a new lesson, so... Um, It's very difficult. Maybe it's the most difficult thing we have to do, you know, but somehow removing the idea of practice from in order to, you know, like instead of I'm practicing in order to deepen my concentration or to, you know, get rid of my thoughts or whatever it is, and somehow um, not to have uh, so many agendas stuck to it because then... um, Maybe you can practice all day and your concentration won't be so good and that'll be okay. You know, but it's still worth doing. Lana? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess, did you hear that? I guess it depends on um, the nature of your day. You know, if your uh, life presents many challenges in those arenas, then I'd say the morning, <laughs> you know, because it will help set the stage. Um, sometimes it's nice to do at night, you know, because things are kind of relatively quiet and there's a sense... Um, I often get of greater uh, access to beings around the world somehow, you know, because I've done my day. and um, You know, it's, it's a little bit like that. So it just depends on your, your experience. I think it's uh, if you do sit twice a day and you're interested in doing the Brahma Viharas more systematically or intensively, it's a great thing to do. 
to, to bring it into your practice quite formally that way. I'd also recommend, uh, no matter what your daily practice looks like, um, you know, trying to bring, say, loving-kindness practice into informal situations, which is a wonderful way to keep it going. You know, even if you're just doing awareness practice or something when you're sitting, you know, when you're uh, standing in line at the supermarket or at the bank or all those times and places when we'd normally either be bored or irritated or just filling our minds for no reason other than the fact that... um, we're waiting for something else to happen. It's an amazing time to just consciously offer the phrases of loving kindness. And there's a lot of learning, too. You know, it's not um, that you're always filled with great waves of joyous feeling, you know, but um, it does bring us in touch with a, a deeper reality, so... I think if you've found a time <laughs> that works for you, you should absolutely keep it. <laughs> because it's not that easy to sit twice a day, <laughs> you know, let alone once a day. So um, you should really do what works for you. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, the question was about working with intention and using intention besides the obvious ways that we use it, like with the Brahma Viharas and stuff, but um, finding... Uh, sensation is it in the body that yeah tightness in the body that um, she recognizes as grasping or thinks is grasping recognizes as grasping and then making the intention um, may the grasping uh, this grasping be released for the sake of all sentient beings and often it will it will go away so is that manipulating the experience um, not necessarily. You know, I mean, it may not be manipulating the experience in a bad sense, but the question always becomes what happens when the grasping doesn't go away? You know, because no power of intention like that is, is the same as being able to control the unfolding of events. You know, it can be one of the conditions that comes into place that allows a greater perspective, you know, a bigger sense of release, and so the tightness may you know, relax in that greater expanse. And um, one thing for sure you're not doing when you're making that resolve or that intention is you're not uh, going down the usual road of papancha, which is I'm such a bad person because I have all this grasping and this is never going to go away and it's going to last forever. And, you know, and, uh, you know, no one has grasping like this and, you know, and, and all of that. And so um, at the very least, making that intention is taking up the mental space you know, so that the rest of the stuff isn't happening, which is excellent, you know. Um, and beyond that, it connects you to something bigger, you know. So um, 
it's not necessarily at all an unskillful thing to do. It can be very skillful. But when, as will definitely happen, at least from time to time, you're going to say that and it's going to get tighter, you know, uh, then you really have to bring right view to bear, you know, and not say it louder, you know, and, you know, say it again and, you know, and, um, you know, kind of getting into that, that mind state of um, uh, really trying to control what's going on with you. You know, then you have to rely on wisdom you've gained, um, which is, is both in terms of how you relate to it and its very nature. You know, to know however tight it is, um, it's also changing, it's also conditioned, you know, and, and you need that wisdom at that point to come forward you know, so that you can really just sit there and be filled with grasping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you all hear that? No, there's a no somewhere. Okay, the question was about this particular period, these last two days, which have been very, very difficult. Um, and uh, she's saying the concentration is left, the mindfulness is left, although I question that. And uh, what's left, uh, as far as she can see, is the sensitivity. So it's, it's really excruciating. Um, and talking to people brings up uh, all these these feelings, and um, even though she has all of these tools, um, and what did I have to say <laughs> about it? Um, it's not uncommon, you know. It's uh, it's very common that the sensitivity one has developed is the most predominant feeling right now and that it's awkward, you know, to be with all these people and um, to hear these words come out of your mouth and <laughs> to wonder why you said that. and um, You know, and the comparing and the judging and, and everything, it, it can be very intense. But um, first of all, I don't really believe the mindfulness is gone because mindfulness is not something you have to build um, in this sense. You know, it's just something you need to access. So um, stepping back and just even seeing the larger pattern of what's going on brings you to a more centered place, even though what you're looking at is kind of crummy, you know, um, in that we would all wish for those feelings not to be here or to be more mature, you know. Uh, But it doesn't matter. You know, it's still helpful if you can settle back and be watching it all without diving in and then and solidifying a whole sense of self around it. You know, you're watching the integration movie right now, and it's going to have all of those elements. It just is, you know. And, and bringing it up is actually a good thing because I think you can tell from how people are reacting. You're not the only one, you know that's going through this. So that's one thing. And the other thing is um, just the very simple and basic tool the Buddha gave about mindfulness of the body. There's nothing wrong with feeling your feet against the ground. You know, when you're standing there and you're all uh, confused and 
as you say, you have all of these tools at your disposal and you don't know what to do, um, <clears throat> I would go for the coarsest tool possible, which is feeling your body. Um, and it's good that it's coarse because there are lots of situations where the energy's flying and you feel really ragged and there's a lot going on and trying to watch one thought change to the next or even to feel your breath is way too refined. It's just not the appropriate tool for that kind of situation. And so coming, I think, um, you know, the Buddha, and perhaps this is why, he strongly emphasized mindfulness of the body. And it is one of those kinds of tools that I used to feel when I first was learning about it, I used to feel, well, you know, that's dumb. You know, and... (laughs) You know, because it was so trivial. It sounded so trivial or so, you know, um, unsophisticated. But in fact, you know, watch the next time your mind is flying off into this field, this frenzy of judgment. You know, watch what happens if you just feel your feet against the ground and kind of settle back in into your own experience. It's quite interesting you know, just to do that. So it's kind of both those things. You know, it's having the understanding of um, even as concentration flees and as you find yourself feeling quite raw and very um, beset with a lot of difficult emotions, you know, as as you're coming out, um, it doesn't mean something's gone wrong, you know, and you you can be mindful of that whole process and at the same time try to pay particular attention to mindfulness of the body, you know, which will help a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, full awakening. <laughs> I mean, there's always that. Did you hear that? Um, I mean that that makes sense. Of course, you know it seems right that. Um, we will experience a great mixture of love and attachment over and over again, quite intertwined, but even short of full awakening, which I wouldn't give up hope for, (laughs) you know. Um, I think, I don't know, did I use this example in the whole about equanimity where they say in the text it's like a parent whose child is now an adult? um, That's the classic example in the Buddhist text for the state of equanimity. It's... um, the parent whose child is now an adult, so the parent is looking at their child and realizing that the feelings and the responsibilities they had when the child was young, uh, the feelings might still be, in, in comparison to that, you know, now that the child's an adult, the feelings can still be incredibly warm and close and full of you know, loving kindness and compassion and all of that. Uh, but there needs to be an ability to let go and to realize that the child is, is now an adult. They're making their own decisions. They're making their own plans. Their happiness and unhappiness will depend upon their actions and so on. And it's not a cold state. It's, it's not a harsh state at all of, of kind of like you know, throwing them out of the house and saying, well, it's been fun, but you know, it's over now. Um, it's a very deep recognition of how things are, that at the same time there could and should be tremendous connection, you know, and, and caring. Uh, there needs to be the wisdom of saying, you know, this is, this is how things evolve uh, naturally in the world. So I used to read that all the time because it is the most common example in the text, and I used to think, Oh, well, not, what nice families they all had, you know, <laughs> back in the time of the Buddha where all these parents, like, let go of their children at the appropriate time, you know, and they 
love them completely and then could allow them to be their own person and, you know. Um, so <laughs> I think uh, because of the power of mindfulness, one can see one's mind dancing on that edge, you know, and because of right view or wisdom, understanding, you know, we can pull back from the edge and remember the force of equanimity. Um, you know, when loving kindness or love um, is moving into the realm of attachment, it means it's re- moving into the realm of trying to control something that can't be controlled. You know, control change, control the other person, something. Um, and, and that's a feeling we can learn to identify and let go of, you know, and, and get lost in and let go of. And um, I think that uh, it's just like bringing wisdom to bear, you know, into some very complex and intricate connections, you know, which, which we need to do. Um, it doesn't hurt the power of the connection. You know, it usually only enhances it because that other element uh, doesn't tend toward happiness, you know, when, when there's that wish to control or need to control. Um, and with all practices, you know, short of full enlightenment, it's a moment-to-moment thing. You know, so uh, you needn't despair if you find you're doing it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, You know, thinking, oh, well, this is terrible. I need to do this over and over and over again. You know, why doesn't it just uh, get, you know, get free? Why don't I just get free of this? But it's not going to be that way. You know, but the more you do it, the easier it is to do. And the less uh, inviting the attachment or the control is because you see the suffering of it. And the more you do it, the more understanding there is of the state that is not trying to control. And the more pleasure is derived from that. You know, Because in the um, intellectual level or theoretical level, it can seem kind of weird, you know, and um, removed and uncaring and uninvolved and, and all of that, but in the actual experience of it, it's not that. And so the more you let go for a moment of attachment, the more you, you feel the joy of that state and the connection of that state. You know, so you just do that a zillion times. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Did you all hear that? (laughs) You'll hear the last part. The earlier part was, uh, he was talking about um, getting into an intimate relationship because of wanting something from the other person, wanting to love and be loved, and that's the very nature of the relationship. So um, that that seems why people get together in that way. And so wanting is inherently built into the system, so to speak. Um, Probably. (laughs) But, I mean, I think suffering is inherent in everything, so I wouldn't single this out, you know, as a a particular... (laughs) That... 
Well, I don't, you know, I'm not really up on psychological development of the infant through the child, but I would bet that, you know, in terms of object relations and so on, that, um, and this is in part what I was going to say, is that um, the way things start is not the way they are in the middle, and the way they are in the middle is not the way that things are in the end. And so um, people get into relationships for all kinds of reasons. Um, That doesn't mean that it can't grow and shift and change, you know, and in fact, if it doesn't, you know, if um, you know, depending on how deep that need is for reassurance that one is lovable, you know, if that's a, a daily or hourly demand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I bet that would, <laughs> you know, create some pressure. But people grow. To, I don't think <laughs> people grow together, you know, and they change, and the motivation. I actually think. I would say people get together because of some karmic bond, you know, because of some karmic bond, you know, that what appears to be um, the ways we come together may not be the deepest or the only reason that people come together. There's a connection, you know, that is, um, there are lots of different kinds of connections we all have with one another. And even though uh, through the course, perhaps, of infinite lifetimes, we've all done and been everything to one another. Still, there are certain kinds of connections that that seem very magnetic in this life. I mean, if you talk about um, kind of the old-style relationship to a teacher, you know, when people will say, like when we lived in India, and people would say, you have to come meet my guru. You know, my guru is... is um, you know, the best thing in the world, and they were for them, maybe, you know, uh, and for many people, but for other people, there's like, you know, you'd walk into the room and there's like nothing there for you. You know, there's just, there's a lot about connection and, and what uh, what happens between people, and I think that's true for intimate and personal relationships as well. And um, so we may think, you know, we're in it for one psychological need, you know, that's met or emotional need that's met by this other person, but I think there are lots of layers to it. Um, and I think it's the same thing, you know, even if a child needs to develop a healthy attachment, you know, then there's the breaking away and the individuation and, you know, everything else that needs to happen. So if that can't happen uh, from either side, you know, because there's, there's too much clinging, then that's not a very good situation either. You know, and so... Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one is there for the kind of karmic condition, you know, that that brings us together. Um, I think if you've transcended all the karma, <laughs> it's conceivable, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think even if you've Come, I think if you've transcended most of the karma, I think you could still be there, you know, because um, it's just in the nature of, uh, I mean, even in a whole other level, you know, when um, the Buddha formed the order of monks or nuns, you know, it's a community. And, and there are certain bonds within that unit, you know, that happen. And so... Um, It doesn't seem that the 
perhaps and likely complete enlightenment of the people in that community uh, meant the end of personal relationships within the community. You know, there were... Um, you know, there were just ways that people bonded. From, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, then, if you don't take the, the example of the monks and the nuns, you know, but of the lay people, um, even in the Buddhist time or in our own time, um, then I think, I imagine they would say that it's a result of, of the karma that has brought them together and that you don't. Uh, you know, you don't dishonor that in a way. You know, you really um, work with those conditions, you know, as they might be. Okay, it's time to stop. (laughs) Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.